Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Great Race of Mercy, which is also sometimes known uh, known as or referred to by its much less exciting name, the 1925 Serum Run to Gnome. I much prefer the Great Race of Mercy. Does, it does add a, uh, a certain zip and zap to it, whereas obviously the Serum Run to Gnome is a little... A little more literal, I suppose. Anyway, basically what happens is this. 1925, this tiny Alaskan town, uh, Nome, the gross thing run to Nome, Nome, um, out at the arse end of the world, obviously in Alaska, uh, almost completely cut off from the outside world by horrifically bad winter weather. Now, you'd sort of think, okay, normal, this is part of the course for, for, you know, Alaskans, they're as tough as anything, everyone knows this, so what's the problem here? Well, the problem was that the people in the town had started to come down with diphtheria. And, check this out, oh no, it gets worse from before. It gets only worse from here, because there's no antitoxin left. So, the clock is ticking down before a full-blown epidemic kicks off in Nome and you know, the surrounding areas. And they decide that the best way to get a stack of antitoxin serum to Nome is with a dog sled relay through the uh, Alaskan wilderness there. So... This is the beginning of the Great Race of Mercy where successive mushers, or dog sled races, mushers, uh, raced against time to deliver this antitoxin over 1,000 kilometres with temperatures hovering around minus bloody 50 degrees Celsius throughout the entire journey. So, it's an absolute ripper of a story. Let's get into it. And our story begins in uh, in December 1924 in this tiny little town called Nome, as I mentioned. Nome is on the southern end edge of that uh, that middle sort of sticky outy bit of Alaska, the bit that points right over the Bering Strait at Russia. Um, and there's only about 2,000 people living there at this stage. Uh, there had been up to 20,000 people during the gold rush, a couple of you know a while a while ago, a few years before, forgotten exactly how many. Whoops. Um, but right now, only about 2,000 people, and uh, there's only one doctor and four nurses looking after all of them there in this little town there. The doctor's name is Curtis Welch, and uh, it's in December 1924 that he has to deal with some kids coming in with sore throats. Now, he's not too worried. They're isolated cases. He doesn't reckon it's diphtheria or anything else like that. No dramas, mate. Probably just tonsillitis. Go home, get some rest, whack the telly on, take it easy, mate. Don't worry about it. But over the coming weeks, however, he's getting more and more cases like this, and uh, as uh, diphtheria is super bloody contagious he starts to get a bit worried about it. He realises that the town is in deep poop if it is, in fact, diphtheria, as they are fresh out of antitoxin. They've only got some old, out-of-date doses left, and the town's port has just been closed for the winter, so he can't order in any more by ship. Now, by the time we get to January, things are looking very bloody grim indeed, because by this stage, a couple of kids have actually died, and Welch has to face facts. He officially diagnoses it as diphtheria. He tries to use some of the out-of-date antitoxin on one of the kids, but uh, this kid unfortunately dies anyway, so he has no idea if it's actually doing anything at all. And Welch realises that without an antitoxin, the town is absolutely stuffed. He's certain there's going to be a a 100% mortality rate if they can't do anything to prevent uh, uh, prevent a full-blown epidemic. This is, I mean, he's not mucking around, and he, he knows exactly what he's talking about. It is that bad and it is that deadly that it'll just kill everyone. It'll kill every single person in the town and in the you know in the in the surrounding area. There's about ten thousand people living in in the in the region around Nome, and diphtheria just wipe them all out if there is not uh, if there's no you know antitoxin, nothing nothing that are treated. So as a result of this, on the twenty first of January uh, nineteen twenty five, he goes down to the mayor's office. 
and he gets the mayor, a bloke named George Maynard, to call a council meeting to decide what to do. And at this meeting, the council, uh, they impose a quarantine on a stack of people in Nome to prevent the disease from spreading any further. But obviously, this is just a temporary measure. This isn't going to solve the problem forever. And so Welch also sends out an impassioned plea to the US Public Health Service over in Washington, D.C., begging them to send out some more of this antitoxin quick as you bloody can there, fellas, if you don't mind, before we're all wiped off the face of the earth. Now, the Public Health Service, they start scrambling to find antitoxin to send up to Nome, and they actually collect 1.1 million units of the stuff, so this is enough to treat heaps and heaps of people here, uh, from West Coast hospitals, and they organise to ship them up to Seattle to go up to Alaska via ship to Seward and then deliver, deliver them overland from there. The problem is... They'll get to Nome way, way too late if they go by this, go like this. The earliest they can get the antitoxin to Seattle is on the 31st, right? So this is a full, you know, nine, ten days uh, when when this outbreak is uh, is already beginning. Um, and then after that, it'd take a week to get to the Alaskan port of Seward from Seattle. And then who knows how long it'd take to get to Nome overland. So this is just not going to work. I mean, you know, it'll be a slow way for the antitoxin to get there. But by the time it gets there, it'll be far, far too late. Luckily, however, an alternative presents itself. On the 26th of January, staff at the Anchorage Railroad Hospital, you know, they're, they're looking to see if they've got any spares, and they find 300,000 units of antitoxin that had been forgotten about. Now, this is bloody brilliant. This is enough to stave off an effort. It's not enough to treat everyone. It's not enough to, you know, it's not going to be a long-term solution. Even with 300,000 units, that does sound like a lot. But, you know, I'm not a... I'm not a half-assed doctor, I'm a half-assed historian, so I'll just go with it. Um, anyway, it's enough to stave off an epidemic and, and, pro- and provide at least a little bit of treatment for the people affected until the rest of the units arrive later. But how are they going to get them from Anchorage all the way up to Nome? There are no roads, and it's not really possible to fly an aeroplane that far north in the current conditions. In fact, there are, actually, oh, there are only three aeroplanes in the whole of Alaska at this time, um, and they'd all been disassembled. They'd all been taken apart for the winter for, I don't know, maintenance or whatever you do to aeroplanes, I don't know. Um, but not only, not only this... They had open cockpits and water-based cooling systems, right, or water-based heating systems, water-based temperature regulation systems. I don't know. Again, I'm not a half-assed aerospace engineer. Um, and, and you know, open cockpits, water-based temperature, temperature regulation, not what you want in minus 50-degree temperatures. And it gets worse because on top of that, the longest distance that had ever been flown in, in Alaska in the winter was only 420 kilometres. Uh, and that was in only, only in minus 23 degrees. So aeroplanes are just right out. I mean, there are, people are discussing, the people are trying to talk about it. The, the mayor, uh, Mayor Maynard, he's actually quite keen on an aeroplane. But ultimately, uh, they, they make a different decision. They make a different decision as to how to get, uh, get the, 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 uh, the serum, the, the antitoxin up there. Flying is ruled out in favour of a dog sled relay. Dog sledding or mushing, as I called it before, as it was known, used to be known as, as mushing. It was the primary delivery method for mail and, and stuff like this at this stage, although in the coming years, obviously, sort of die out as you know, bloody aircraft become hardier and more reliable. And then, of course, someone goes ahead and invents the bloody snowmobile in the 60s, and, and that's it for the poor dogs. Um, it's called mushing, by the way, because originally uh, French dog sled teams used to use the word mush. Uh, or walk in French to tell the dogs to go and uh, that eventually got bastardised into mush and, and that's the name that ended up sticking although apparently it's not all that popular uh, these days when referring to the uh, to the sport anyway um, mushing is decided as the way to go uh, to get this antitoxin up to Nome. Uh, so, after being whacked in little vials, wrapped up all safe in quilts and stuck in this big sort of metal cylinder of a container, the antitoxin is transported from Anchorage to Nanana, uh, arriving on the 27th of January. And it's from Nanana that the relay to Nome will begin. 
As more cases of diphtheria are diagnosed in Nome, however, and as the town's death toll reaches five, there may have been many more unreported deaths outside the town as well. The territorial governor of Alaska, a bloke whose name was Scott Bone, he pulls out all the stops at this stage. The logistics of this trip become truly ridiculous as they all scramble to prevent an epidemic from, let's not forget what this epidemic is going to do, completely wipe out the population of Nome and its surroundings. So people are really doing everything they can to prevent this from happening. And as I say, the logistics get buck wild. The reason for this, it's estimated that the antitoxin will only last for six days while being transported. And uh, the usual trip from Nanana to Nome, usually, it usually takes well over a month so uh, as a result, the relay is arranged so that the serum hardly ever stops moving. This is done by getting the company usually in charge of delivering the post, the northern commercial company, to have mushers ready and waiting to go at various points along the route, just like relay runners in an Olympic race. The idea is to have as close to zero downtime as possible and keep the antitoxin moving. But of course, this requires an enormous amount of coordination uh, of, of all the different mushers who are, who are going to get involved. So the company, they organised 20 mushers to be spread out uh, along the route, ready uh, to go the moment uh, the antitoxin arrived. These mushers, they're, they're semi-legendary figures in this region. Uh, they're you know, properly brave, big, burly men of the wild frontiers, most of them actually native uh, Athabascans. And uh, usually they worked for the mail service. Usually they worked to get the post out there or deliver things, what have you. But of course, now they've all, it's, 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 it's all systems go. They're dropping everything to get on top of this, uh, this antitoxin situation and, uh, and, and, as I say, spread out along this route between uh, Nanana and Nome. So... The stage is set, the route is delineated, and the mushers take up their positions at the roadhouses along the route ready to go. They've got to travel a thousand kilometres in under six days through blizzards, gales, hardly any sunlight, and minus 50 degree cold. Easy bloody game, you'd think. The race begins uh, when the first musher, a bloke whose name was Wild Bill Shannon, sets off from the Nanana train station at 9 o'clock at night on the 27th of January. It's a brisk minus 46 degrees, and it doesn't start well for poor old Shannon. He's forced to take his team off the trail due to its poor condition and onto the ice uh, of the river nearby that the trail is following. Now, it's obviously bloody freezing cold, and Shannon tries to keep himself toasty by jogging along beside the sled. Unfortunately, however, he still gets hypothermia, and by the time he gets to Tolavana at 11 o'clock the next morning, the 28th, where the next musher is waiting, his face is black with frostbite, this poor bugger. He's travelled 84 kilometres, whereas 40 kilometres is usually considered a huge distance to travel uh, while mushing in, you know, in a single day, so he's, he's, he's really done a great effort. But uh, in any, any case, the antitoxin is off again after he arrives in Tolavana, being warmed up at the roadhouse, and uh, then continues speeding on its way towards Nome. Things go smoothly enough enough throughout the, the 28th and the 29th, with the antitoxin being passed from musher to musher without incident. And uh, the temperature had even been a bit warmer during the daytime. It is a blistering minus 39. Uh, gets as high as minus 39, if you believe it. So very, very toasty indeed. Now, in the early morning of the 30th, however, it's back down to minus 53 when 21-year-old Charlie Evans gets a hold of the antitoxin at Bishop Mountain. He sets off through a thick ice fog, and uh, sadly, two of his dogs actually succumb to frostbite before too long. Uh, but Evans, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's not going to let this uh, affect him, not let, it get, let, him, uh, let this uh, you know, cause a delay. He himself harnesses himself up with the dogs and pulls the sled along with them and successfully arrives at Nulato at 10 o'clock. So things still travelling along on schedule, thanks to Evans, you know, 
harnessing himself up to the to the sled. So good on him there. The antitoxin whizzed on to uh, Unalaklit on the back uh, on the banks of the Norton Sound, and the musher waiting there is a bloke named Miles Ganangan. Uh, he'd initially planned to cut across the frozen water of the sound itself towards Shaktulik. Now, he ultimately decides against this, this dangerous trip across open ice because there is a massive storm brewing. He can tell there's a massive storm brewing on the horizon and Ganangan decides instead to stick to land, driving his team through a full whiteout, essentially, over the hill and through the dales. So it's very, very dangerous all the same, but not quite as dangerous as being caught in the middle of an exposed ice field, uh, you know, in the middle of a storm. Now, it's a somewhat nippy minus 59 at this point, but that doesn't stop him. He arrives in Shaktulik, no worries at all, at 3 o'clock, and he hands off the antitoxin to a bloke named Henry Ivanov. Now, Ivanov wasn't actually supposed to be taking the, the antitoxin. He was a backup musher who uh, had to stand in for the legendary Leonard Sapala, who hadn't made it to Shaktulik in time for the handoff. Sapala had been up and down the route, making sure everything was ready, and he wasn't exactly, due to some last-minute changes to try to get things as uh, running as smooth as clockwork, he actually wasn't where he should have been on time and had travelled a great distance to actually try to get to Shaktulik uh, in time to, for the handoff, but, but unfortunately didn't make it there. So, no worries. Instead, it's Ivanov who sets off, uh, but he hasn't even made it a kilometre out of Shaktulik before running into issues. Disaster strikes for him because either his team started fighting amongst themselves or he ran into a reindeer, perhaps both. I'm not able, I actually wasn't able to conclusively find out what happened, but in any case, he's not going anywhere fast as his dogs are all tangled up in their harness and he can't actually move. But what's this? Despite the storm, despite the horrific conditions, all was not lost. Barreling towards Shaktulik as fast as he can go, here comes Sapala, the bloody legend. Get around him. He, he's, he's barreling into the town, as I say, as quick as he can, trying to be, get there in time for the handoff. And luckily, luckily, he passes Ivanov within, uh, within Kuiv Ivanov. So Ivanov can, he bellows out at him as loud as he can that he has the antitoxin and disaster is averted. As Sapala takes it off him, takes it off Ivanov, and continues on. So we're back on schedule. However, unlike Gonangan, Sapala does decide to brave the ice of the sound. He leaves himself extremely exposed to the worst of this incoming storm. And as the temperature starts to fall and fall as this storm brews further and further, Sapala is in... in he's, uh, the, the conditions he were, was in were absolutely unthinkable. Minus 65. Minus 65. Sapala and his team, led by the famous Togo, uh, speed on towards their destination. Togo, uh, his lead dog there, managed to keep the rest of the dogs in a dead straight line through the dark as the storm continued to rise and delivered Sapala and the antitoxin safely to Ungarlik at Eight o'clock on the evening on the 31st of January. I have no idea how this amazing dog did this. A wonderful animal, Togo. Apparently, I read that he did it with his sense of smell. I've got no idea. I mean, dogs are incredibly clever creatures. I don't know how Togo navigated an ice shelf with his nose, but full credit to him. Full credit to Togo there. Anyway, now... Despite reaching Ungarlik safely and despite being able to uh, have a bit of a rest there, Sapala wasn't finished. As I say, he had a bit of a rest. He fed his dogs and he warmed up the antitoxin and you sort of thought it out a bit. Uh, he and Togo were off again, this time into the storm, blowing full tilt. It was its full force 
winds howling at over 100 kilometres an hour. But Sapala, he keeps going, he's braving this whiteout, these blizzard-like conditions, storm-forced winds. It is a, it's just a horrific set of circumstances for him, but he keeps going, this absolute legend, and arrives in Golovin at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 1st of February, and he hands off the antitoxin to the next musher, a bloke whose name was Charlie Olson. Now, Sapala and Togo, they completed the longest individual leg of the entire journey. They travelled almost 150 kilometres, 146 kilometres in all, almost twice as much as any other musher. And they also experienced perhaps the hardest bits of the whole journey, blasting their way across open ice in the midst of a terrible storm. And for this reason, Sapala and Togo are amongst the most famous characters to emerge from this whole story. But there is a little bit more to it than that, as we will come to, you know, in a little bit. We'll just we'll pick this uh, thread up a little bit further, uh, you know, when we talk about the aftermath of this whole journey. Anyway, poor old Charlie Olson, this bloke who's just picked up the antitoxin here from Sapala. Olsen is having a terrible time of things once he heads out into the storm. The wind is now up to 130 kilometres an hour, and the temperature is still at an unbelievable minus 57. Olsen ends up getting his hands frostbitten while he's trying to put blankets on his poor old dogs, but despite this, he still manages to make it to bluff at 7 o'clock that evening. And the next musher to receive the antitoxin is a fellow whose name is Gunnar Carson, a very important, uh, a very important identity in in this whole story, as we'll discover. Now, given the ridiculous storm that is raging outside, Carson actually waited until ten o'clock for it to blow itself to for you know see if it bloody blow over or, or calm down at least a little bit here, uh, because they've received a message along the telegraph wires along the telephone poles there uh, from Doctor Welsh saying. Given the storm, fellas, just cool your heels, settle down. It, it, we'd rather a delay than the antitoxin not arrive at all. So let's just chill out a little bit and, and not overdo it. Make sure it gets here in one piece. So as a result, uh, we've got uh, we've got Carson there just waiting, uh, chilling out, seeing if it's going to, well, chilling out in a very literal sense. I guess he's trying to do the opposite. There. He's, trying to, he's trying to stay warm, I imagine. Anyway, he, he wants to see if the storm's going to blow over and he gets all the way, well, it's three hours, it gets till 10, 10 p.m. there and he goes, Bugger this for a joke. I'm heading out. I've, we've waited long enough. The storm's not going anywhere. I'm going out. I'm going, you know, I'm going to go and get this thing done. So Carson heads out into this blizzard, not technically a blizzard, but for people who don't understand the, you know, specific meteorolo- meteorological uh, definition of a blizzard, for example, me, basically a blizzard, lots of snow and ice, bloody cold, can't see a thing. That sounds like a blizzard to me. And Carson is heading out not only into this, these blizzard-like conditions, but also into a headwind. So he's in really, really tough uh, circumstances as well. He's very, very tough uh, going for him indeed. Visibility close to zero. It's so bad that Carson can't even see the dogs that are tied closest to his sled. Now, he's supposed to take a break after having, you know, after having gone through, uh, you know, all the way here to a place called Solomon. He's supposed to take a break there, but due to the poor visibility, he goes right past Solomon without even realizing. He goes pa- straight past where he's supposed to have a little, uh, have a little, have a little uh, rest there, without even realizing that he's done so. He gets three kilometers down the road and realizes, oh bloody hell, I was supposed to stop back there. Anyway, he decides he's going to press on. He's not going to stop. Not going to let that delay him or anything. Not going to go back. Certainly not going to go back. So he decides to press on. Now, the weather hasn't improved at all, and at one point, the wind is so bad while he's, he's heading on to the next, uh, the next checkpoint there, the next rest house. The wind is so bad that Carson and his sled, they get flipped over, and the antitoxin, oh no, it disappears 
into a huge snow drift. Now, the snow is piled high, as high as three metres here of snow has fallen in some places, and the drifts are enormous. The trail that the, uh, the, the mushers usually use is almost completely covered and blocked here, and into one of these massive snow drifts, this, uh, the cylinder, the, the, the container holding all of the precious antitoxin, it's fallen into one of these drifts. Remember, it, it, there's no visibility, you know, this poor bloke, Carson, he's got no idea what, what's going on or where to find it, right? So what he does, he's desperately, he's searching for the missing container and he is forced, once he gets an idea of where it is, he, he is forced to use his bloody bare hands while digging around in the snow to find it. And he ends up with frostbite for his trouble, but thank goodness he finds the antitoxin and he is off and away once again before too much longer. So again, this mission hanging by a hair's breadth here, but all the same, Carson managed to get back, get back on track and he is off and away. Now, he arrives at point safety at three o'clock in the morning on the 2nd of February, and this is where things get a little bit interesting. This is where a little bit of controversy arises in this story here. Point safety was the last stop before Nome, and the musher who was supposed to run the last leg of the relay, a bloke named Ed Roan, was waiting there at point safety for Carson to arrive. However, because of the schedule, uh, because of uh, the way that the schedule had worked, and because Carson was supposed to take a break at Solomon and didn't, Carson actually ends up getting to point safety way, way ahead of time, and so Roan is sleeping. He's not up and about. He's not ready to go because he's he's resting in preparation for the last leg of the journey. He's in he's in the uh, the rest house asleep. As the four, as as the storm was finally subsiding, and as it would have taken ages for Roan to get up and harness his dogs, Carson decides to keep going. He sees that the lights are off in the bunkhouse. He decides not to go in and wake up Roan, and he continues on on his own. Now, this decision proved to be a very, very controversial one, as we will discuss a little later. But for now, Carson is on his way, the final 40 kilometres of the journey, and he arrives safely into Nome at half past five in the morning with all 300,000 units of the diphtheria antitoxin safely delivered. Not a crack, not a trace of breakage. They all get there safe as anything, and the antitoxin, it's thawed out, administered before the day is out, and the epidemic is averted. The town of Nome is saved, and the brave mushers are heroes. They become an overnight sensation. Well, some of them do, at least. They uh, all get letters from President Calvin Coolidge, and they get medals made, and all that sort of good stuff. But, in particular... It's Gunnar, Carson, and Balto, his dog Balto, that bathe in the limelight and end up going on tour to rapturous crowds throughout the oh, throughout 1925 and 1926. They have a film made about them, and there's even a statue of Balto that is erected in Central Park in New York City. However, Carson and Balto may have stolen the glory from the real heroes of the trip, Sapala and Togo, and of course... All the rest of the mushers, Sapala and Togo, braved the worst of the conditions and travelled further than any of the other mushers, but they didn't receive all that much attention for it. And as for the rest of the mushers, most of whom were Athabascan or Alaskan native, they got next to zero public uh, recognition at all. So wasn't a particularly fair sort of divvying up of the uh, of the adulation and adoration between all, all of the mushers because... Uh, Carson definitely emerged as the uh, as the best known hero from this whole affair. Now, these allegations of attention seeking against Carson are made all the worse when you think about the circumstances surrounding his stop in Point Safety where Ed Roan was sleeping. 
Carson claimed that his dogs were running well and that he didn't want to waste time waiting for Roan to get up and get ready. But was that the real reason he didn't wake Roan up? Or did he realise that the person who got the antitoxin across the finish line would be the one who would be lavished with adoration and praise? Well, we're not 100% sure. Certainly accusations have flown around from camp to camp about exactly what went on in Carson's head throughout this time. But any way you slice it, Carson, as I say, ended up being the best-known identity, the biggest hero out of this whole thing. And the statue of Balto is still standing in New York today. Still, on the other hand, Sapalo and Togo definitely worked harder than any of the other mushers. They travelled the greatest distance through the worst conditions, that, you know, basically out of anyone else involved. Ultimately, however, all of this talk about praise and credit and, and appreciation and all that sort of stuff, ultimately that, that, this really it shouldn't matter, should it? Because the people of Nome, they were saved. They were saved by the extraordinary actions of these people and their dogs who managed to travel over a thousand kilometers through extreme conditions in just over five days. Today, mushing has kind of fallen out of mainstream favor, what with, again, aeroplanes and, and snowmobiles and whatever else. But the Great Race of Mercy is still remembered and celebrated as one of the, as, as really the, the apex, the pinnacle of this, of this sport, of this, of this uh, endeavor, whatever you want to call it. And in 1975, in fact, there was a reenactment of the race with many of the descendants of the original mushers taking part. And there's also a yearly, uh, a yearly sled dog race called the uh, Editorod Trail Sled Dog Race, and it, it frequently pays tribute to the Great Race of Mercy. However, at the end of the day, the Great Race of Mercy, it showcased some of the very best of what it is to be human, with dedicated, collaborative effort in the face of enormous challenges, ultimately saving the lives of thousands. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Great Race of Mercy. I, I know we've done a lot of sort of expeditions into into cold and unforgiving wilderness uh, areas, so it's nice to have one that ends ends with a happy story. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to end the show with uh, with a couple of quick apologies. Uh, I know I've been a bit slack with getting episodes up uh, recently, and, and I do apologise to all the listeners who've been sort of put out by that. It it, it annoys me when. Uh, you know, stuff that I'm accustomed to coming out on a certain day doesn't uh, doesn't meet its deadline, and, and I, I really am sorry that I haven't. I, you know, I've, I've dropped the ball in the last couple of weeks with a few episodes. Um, I'm just in the process of finishing up a a, you know, a couple of months travel. I was over in Australia, then I was over in the States for a while, and, and now I'm back in Scotland where I'm. Uh, well, I should be settled down, found myself a nice little place here, so I should, I should be all right, and, and hopefully the the episodes will be coming out on schedule. But I do apologise. I know it's not really good enough, and uh, and I, I will try to lift my game in the future. So uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, and I do thank all the people who've got in touch with uh, with questions and concerns, wondering where the episodes are and if they're coming out. But it should be back to regular programming from here on out. I'll I'll, I'll do my very best. Anyway. So I do apologise for that, and uh, again, if you want to be one of those people who gets in touch and complains and whinges about all this sort of stuff, well, I mean, feel free, whatever. My inbox is, uh, you know, far from full. In any case, uh, Half-Ass History, 
Net. You can go there. There's a contact form there. Get in touch or, or on Twitter at half History without no. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. Still got stickers to send out, of course. Send me your address. I'll send them to you free of charge. And if you've got episode ideas, please do send them through. I'm uh, in the process of working through the backlog of all the all the episode suggestions. Again, not all of them work. I do my very best to do uh, you know due diligence and research on them all. And if I haven't got back to you about the ideas you've got, I'm very sorry about that. I will try to you know answer all the correspondence I get. I, you know, again, I've fallen behind with that. I hope you'll I hope you'll forgive me. You know, and we'll we'll try to get back on track in the coming weeks. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. Got to close thing out, thing, things out as usual with a question uh, posed on Reddit, a, a science question this time, science question rather than history question. Uh, obviously, we talked about the uh, we've talked about antitoxin, talked about vaccines, you know, diphtheria, that sort of stuff. Not such of a so, not so much of a threat these days with the vaccine uh, readily available. But uh, another vaccine related question. This one coming from Sinjin QLB on Reddit. Uh, Sinjin QLB wants to know if yawns are so contagious. Why hasn't there been more of a push to find a vaccine?